Um, we are uh, finishing, we're concluding our series, Awaken My Love. And uh, we've been making our way through some of the ideas in the book of Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. Um, and uh, we've been talking about romance and relationships, um, things like that. If you're with us last week, Hannah brought the word. It was awesome. It was amazing. Um, if you missed it, go back and listen to it on the podcast. It was so, so good. Talking about um, a big concept of how do you know if they're the one, which is a big deal, right? How do you know if they're the one? So Hannah broke it down. She told you who the one is. Um, really good. Okay, uh, we're concluding this series. Now, let me just say that this whole series we're talking about, uh, the reason we're talking about this is because God cares about your whole life, including your love life. And we need to understand that. God cares about your whole life, including your love life. And so we've been trying to talk about how to do relationships well. Now, as we conclude this series, we're going to see that life is more than who you date, what your relationship status says, and how well you do things in relationships. We've had a goal in this series to help our relationships, but I want to say that the goal of your life is not relationships. Okay, so the goal of this series has been how to help our relationships, but the goal of our lives is not to have relationships. And I think in a culture and in a world that overemphasizes both the value and the importance that relationships puts on a person, we need to understand that your life is bigger than that. Your life is more than that. And so with that, we're going to talk about my topic tonight is more than love. Message title is more than love. All right, Song of Songs, chapter 8, beginning in verse 6. We're going to look at two verses, and this is going to sort of uh, project us into what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, it says this. Now, again, the, the context of Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, is it's a musical, right? We've been talking about this idea. It's a musical. Anybody like musicals? Yeah. Um, anybody hate musicals? Hate musicals. Okay. All right. Um, my favorite musical... My favorite musical is, I can't even say it, but Les Mis. Um, I love Les Mis. And, and like, I like, I mean, I've actually never seen the, I would love to see the musical, like, live. But I've, the movie that came out a couple years ago, it's like six hours long. Literally, I have watched it so many times. It's probably unhealthy. Like, I recently was like, I should rewatch that movie. I've probably seen it, like, 10 or 15 times. That's probably an exaggeration. It's probably been more like four times, but still, like a movie that long, it's a lot of times. Anyways, um, musicals are great. This, song, this book is a musical, and it's got a bunch of characters. Uh, it's got Solomon, uh, and he's referred to as he or the betrothed. Um, we've got the, the, the Shulamite woman or her, um, and these two are in love. And their story is, is, is found in this book. And it's basically about them meeting, following, falling in love, dating, uh, getting engaged, then getting married, and then their life together in marriage. There's a few other characters. There's her friends um, and things like that. So it's kind of been this back and forth sort of song, musical type situation. Now we're concluding. This is some of her words. She's singing. Um, uh, this is sort of the conclusion like, this is the big scene, you know. This is Anne Hathaway singing, you know, I dreamed a dream and time will buy. Anyways, um, it says this. Set me, verse 6, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. 
Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It fla- its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for, for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. These verses are pretty poetic, aren't they? It's, it's really interesting. Now, um, these verses, again, are said by the Shulamite, the girl, which is the bride. And she's expressing in these verses the power and the permanence of love. The power and the permanence of love. She says love is like a seal, and a seal is something uh, that, that a king would put on a, on a letter or a piece of information. And when the king's seal went on a piece of, uh, of news or information or decree, it was permanent. Think of the story of Esther. Do we know the story of Esther? Um, the king made a decree that all of the people of Israel that were living in his nation were going to be put together, and he stamped that decree. And the problem was Esther was a Jew. She was an Israelite, and she was also married to the king. And so she was going to be put to death. And the story is amazing where she decides in an act of courage and faith to go into the palace of the king or the, really the throne room of the king where she was not allowed to go, especially if she wasn't summoned. It was all this whole cultural thing. She marched in there and makes this plea to the king and says, like, hey, if you actually go through with what you've just sealed, you're going to put not only me to death, but all of my people. And he realizes, like, oh my gosh, this is a problem, because he really likes this girl. Like Esther, he like really liked her. And she, through an act of faith, stands up to the king and ultimately saves the entire nation, the people of Israel, as a result of this great act of faith. But the problem was the king had set this seal because it was permanent. So she says in this song, love is like a seal, it's permanent. But then also love is like death. How permanent is death? It's kind of like it happens to all of us, and it's permanent. There's like kind of only one character that actually resurrected and is still living. There's a few characters in the Bible that were uh, resuscitated, right? Like Lazarus. He, we call him re- resurrected, but he was just resuscitated. I mean, it was like three days later he was resuscitated, but he lived and died again. But Jesus was resurrected. But death, it's, it's permanent. It's final. And so she's singing, and she says, love is like a seal. Love is like death. It's permanent. But she also expresses, and this is what we're going to focus on tonight. She also expresses the reality that love is not enough. It can't be quenched, she says, like a fire or like a thirst. That a fire is is interesting because the more you put stuff on it, the bigger it becomes, right? Like if you've got a fire and you put wood on it, and you're like, let's try to put it out with more wood, it just becomes bigger. And so, so fire is, it, it's, it's, it, you can't quench it. And the same with a thirst, or at least in this poetic idea, is that there's a thirst that can't be quenched by water. And she's talking about how love is not enough. There's a really interesting story in the New Testament. It's in John chapter 4. We're actually going to read it um, that illustrates this idea very well. So if you would, go to John chapter 4. I'm going to read quite a bit of scripture right now um, because it really paints the idea how love is not enough. And that's what she's describing. She says that she says that love is it's big, it's permanent, it's powerful, it's all these things. But there's an element of love that can that can never be satisfied. There's an aspect of love of like no matter what you have or what you experience, it won't be enough. And so this story illustrates that. It says this, 
John chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the fields that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour would be about 12 o'clock in the afternoon. All right? So notice a couple things about this text so far. One, um, Jesus needed to go to Samaria. The New King James uh, Version says that he, he had to. He needed to. And it's interesting to think about God having to do anything. He like kind of made time. Why does he need to stick to a schedule? You know what I mean? Um, But he had to go to Samaria. Then we're also told that he was wearied from his journey. Isn't that interesting? Jesus, who created all things, like breathed breath and life into humanity, spoke the world into existence, was tired and needed something to drink. So he's wearied from his journey. Then also notice about the six hours, it's 12 o'clock. Now, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into a city to buy food. Then the woman, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, asked a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Now, pause, we have to understand this. Jews and Samaritans hated each other in this context, in this culture. Jews were sort of... um, uh, how can I say this? They're, they thought that their religion, how they worshiped God, was the, the truest and purest form of religion. And they looked down their noses at Samaritans. They didn't think they did it right. Um, now, contextually, they were kind of right um, because what happened was uh, hundreds of years prior to this, Assyria um, had conquered the nation of Israel and they captured a bunch of people and they began to intermarry and have kids with some of the Jews. And those Assyrians and the Jews ultimately created the Samaritans and they had this super warped religion on how to worship God. And so the Samaritans were out there sort of outcasted and the Jews were over here. And in fact, the Jews to go from Judea to Galilee, like this road that, G- or that Jesus was going on, would actually go way out of their way way to get there because they didn't, even though it was a more direct route, wouldn't go through Samaria because they hated the Samaritans. So it was all this like cultural racism that was happening in the time of Jesus. And Jesus says he needed to go to Samaria. So he gets there. There's a woman coming out to to get water at 12 o'clock in the afternoon. We'll talk about that in a moment. To get water in the afternoon. And Jesus says, hey, will you give me something to drink? So one, he's talking to a Samaritan who Jews hated Samaritans. And secondly, not only was it uh, uh, just a Samaritan, it was a woman in Samaria. And in that sort of uh, patriarchal society, they wouldn't have these types of conversations. So Jesus is breaking all sorts of cultural rules, all sorts of stereotypes. He's crossing lines that people didn't cross, all sorts of crazy, because that's Jesus, right? He's like, he's like, oh, you, you guys are dealing with all this cultural racism, all these things. Jesus is like, nope, I'm going to have a conversation with a person because that's what Jesus was about. So he's having this conversation with this woman. He says, hey, will you give me something to drink? She says, how is it that you're talking to me? Because Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. 
So Jesus is like, she says, why are you asking me? And he's like, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me for living water. And the woman said, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself and his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, speaking of the well that she was getting water out of, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. And the woman said to her, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, this is, this is sort of what we're going to focus on. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. So she says, all right, I'll tell you. Like, I'll tell you about this living water. Go get your husband, bring him here. She says, I have no husband. Hopefully, she's thinking, like, let's just leave it at that. I don't have a husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. I love this. Then the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. (laughs) She's like, hmm, Okay, so this is what's happening. Jesus needed to go to Samaria. Why did he need to go to Samaria? In fact, the, reason, the only reason he went to Samaria was to have this conversation with this girl. She shows up around noon. She's getting water. Jesus engages in a conversation. He, he says, hey, will you give me something to drink? I'm thirsty. And she says, are you talking to me? She, and, and he's like, yeah, will you give me something to drink? And then he says, if you knew who you're talking to, you would actually ask me for something to drink for living water. Because what Jesus is doing is Jesus is diagnosing her problem. Jesus brings up water. The the scene is set, but it was deeper than that. Jesus is diagnosing a problem within this lady. She's thirsty. She's looking for something. She's trying to find something. And in her case, she's trying to find satisfaction and contentment in relationship. How do we know? Well, she's had five husbands, and she's now living with a guy that's not her husband. Clearly, she's looking for something, right? And she hasn't found it yet in any one of these people that she's been married to or lived with. And Jesus is diagnosing an issue. And from that, I want to give us a couple practical things about love and relationships. Number one, love is not the goal or gauge of your life. Love, relationships, especially romance, is not the goal or the gauge of of your life. With a culture that overemphasizes relationships and who you're dating, it's easy to make this the focus of our lives. But the narrative of the scripture makes it abundantly clear that a relationship does not define you. In fact, many of the heroes of the Bible were single their whole life. Daniel in the Old Testament was single, and he had powerful impact in his world, he was, he was in politics. He, he rose to uh, an elite place in the Babylonian empire, single his whole life. Paul the apostle was single. Some people suggest that he was married um, and his wife uh, died. We don't know that for certain, but whatever the case, the apostle Paul was single. Do you know the apostle Paul wrote like the majority of the New Testament? The dude wrote the Bible, okay? Wasn't married, didn't have a relationship. And not to mention, and I'm also going to mention, Jesus was single his whole life. 
right? So like Jesus is kind of a big deal, right? Like we all agree Jesus is like, he's why we're here. Jesus was single his whole life because having relationship is not the goal of our life. And I think, I think it's so important that we say this because in a culture that so emphasizes relationships, we need to understand that God does not have that same priority on relationships that our culture has. God cares about your relationships. God does, and that's why we've been talking about this series. But the goal of your life is not to have a boyfriend or girlfriend. The goal of your life is not to get married and have kids. And I think it's, it, we just live in a Western culture where that is the goal of everybody's life. But that's not biblical. That's not the context that we or the, 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 what we need to be living for. So it's not the goal of your life. And secondly, your life's focus should not be finding relationship, but rather finding Jesus. And when your focus is Jesus, he will bring the right people in your life. And if it's his will, he will bring the right person. So it's not the goal, but it's also, secondly, not the gauge of your life. Often we get our value from our relationships. If people don't love me or like me, then maybe I'm not valuable. And that's sort of the narrative of our, of our culture, right? If I'm not loved or if I'm not liked, then I'm not valued. And so we, we place that, that emphasis on relationships because if we can have that relationship, then that means I'm valuable, that I have value. And no doubt this woman got her value from the men she was married to or was living with. And it's easy to view ourselves in light of how people treat us. This woman thought low of herself. How do I know? Well, I mentioned it a couple times that she was drawing water at 12 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, that's important knowing geography and knowing sort of like ancient culture, okay? One, geography matters because about 12 o'clock in the afternoon where they were, it would have been really hot, okay? Earlier in the day, it'd be a lot cooler. So if you have to like go get water for your house because you would have to get water for all of not only drinking but all of your sort of bathing and cleaning and all the things you got to do during the day, you needed water. And so what was normal would be for you to get up early when it was cooler, go get water, and then go do the rest of things for your day. So one, it would have been just smarter. Like you wouldn't have to work as hard. You wouldn't sweat as much if you did it earlier. But secondly, culturally, in a community like that, most often um, the women would get up in the morning and they would go together to the well and it'd be kind of like, like your morning hangout time. It's brunch. The girls got up, they went out to the well, they got the water, they would have conversations, they would talk about what's going on, they would talk about how their kids were driving them crazy or whatever it was they talked about. And then they would go back. So for this woman to be going in the afternoon, it either meant she was dumb. She's just like, I like sweating. Or, or most likely, because of her, her history, because of her reputation, because of her many husbands, it was most likely that she'd kind of been pushed out of that group that had gone early in the morning. And so she probably was going later in the day because she didn't like hearing the whispers or getting the looks or experiencing what she experienced by going early with everybody else. So she's like, I'll just go at noon. Nobody's going to see me. I won't have to deal with that. Whatever the case, she probably had a low value on her own life. But our value, listen to me, is not based upon 
what we have or don't have, what we do or don't do, who we date or who we don't date. The scripture gives us way more value than that. So love is not the goal or the gauge of your life. It should not be the driving force behind everything you do, and it should not be the measurement that we use to determine whether or not our life has value. Can I tell you, as as a pastor that loves you and cares about your whole life, that your life is of more value than the people that you date, whether you've dated, whether you haven't dated, what your relationship experience has been like, your life has more value than that. God has a plan that's bigger than that. And your value, your, your, your significance, your worth is not defined by that. Okay? So love is not the goal or the gauge. Secondly, number two, love cannot satisfy or secure your life. Love can't satisfy or secure your life. The text in Song of Songs says that love is like a thirst that can't be quenched or like a fire that can't be put out. In other words, love alone cannot bring contentment in your life. And we see that in practice with the woman at the well. If relationships satisfied, this woman would have found it, right? If the answer was relationships, she would have found it. She's had six. She has had five marriages. Think about that. Like, that is exhausting to think about. Hannah and I laugh, and we say, like, if anything ever to hap- were to happen to anyone, either one of us, we wouldn't remarry because... Going on a first date just sounds miserable. Like we're, like, we're so happy we don't have to do first dates again. Like, you guys, I'm sorry. You've got lots of first dates ahead of you. Like, it's miserable. It's tough. But, like, like that just seems so exhausting, so overwhelming. This, this woman had done it, like, at least five times. Like, gone down the whole, like, first dates, second dates, like, callbacks, like got the text, like did the whole texting thing, or like the nonstop texting thing for like the, like the nonstop texting thing, like, and did that, and then like he, he got down on one knee, and she said yes, and then they planned a wedding, they planned a wedding, they paid for the wedding, they like picked fish and chicken, they did the wedding five times. Like, that's absurd to me. But let me say, if, if relationships satisfied, she would have found it. But here she uh, he is searching. She's like, okay, I'll, I'll do it again. We'll, okay, we'll do fish this time. We'll have, we'll have the broccoli. We'll do the mashed potatoes. We'll just do it again because hopefully, maybe this time it'll stick. Maybe this time it'll satisfy. Maybe this time it'll be what I'm looking for. But she's unhappy and still looking. And then also notice that she's settled. Bad relationships oftentimes cause you to settle, right? The first five times, maybe her standard was, maybe the first time her standard was really high. And then maybe the second time, it, it wasn't even like, it wasn't as high. Maybe by the fourth or fifth time, she was just like, it was like, yeah, we'll just, let's go to the courthouse, whatever, it doesn't matter. Maybe by the sixth time, this time she's like, do you know what, why even, why even go through the effort? Like, it's probably not gonna last anyways. Let's just move in together. Because over time, compromise lowers your standards, lowers your value. And so she's, she's settled. She's looking for something, but she's unhappy. And I love how Jesus brings up living water because he knows she's thirsty for something. She's looking for something. 
And it's deeper than a relationship. It's de- what she's looking for is deeper than a date and a relationship. He, re- he, he like sees it. He says, your life is not defined. It's not summarized. It's not satisfied simply in having somebody you can hang out with and go out with. It's deeper than a relationship. And so he says, you're not going to find your satisfaction there. And then I think one of the driving forces behind relationships is a sense of security. Deep down, we all want to be completely known and loved. And I think that's sort of the the driving force behind relationships, especially like when when you move past like the first date and into like, like, okay, we're going to call this thing something. Like we're boyfriend and girlfriend. Like this is... Like, it's exclusive, it's you and me, and then, like, we're getting married. Like, the driving force behind that is a sense of of being known completely as you are and being loved. Because that's what we want. We want people to know us on our best days and our worst days and still love us. Right? That's what we want. Deep down, we want people to see us, like, having a mental breakdown and still being like, I got you, girl. Like, I'm, I'm, like, I'll still text you. Deep down, that's what we want. We want to be completely known and completely loved. And so, so this, what this is, is it's a sense of security. It's a sense of security of knowing, like, you love me simply for who I am. Not for what I do for you, not for what I can do for you, but simply because who I am. And listen, the problem is that we can't expect people to be our true sense of security because it's only a matter of time before people are like, ah, right? Like, whoa, like that's too much. Like calibrate, take it back. I don't want to know that much. I don't want to see that much. I don't want to experience that much. And so there's this false sense of security that we can have in people because people inevitably let us down. The only one that knows us fully and loves us anyways is God. The only one that knows you from the inside out. And even in the most like, intimate relationship where there's thoughts and there, or there's, there's feelings that we can't express and that people don't understand about us, God knows and he loves you anyways. And so the only person that, that you can be fully known by and completely loved by is God. And so love and relationships cannot satisfy or bring security to your life. But listen, relationship with Jesus can both satisfy and bring you security. And that's what Jesus is bringing. He shows up and he says, he says girl, you're thirsty. He says, he says but you're but you're." but you're not gonna find it there. He says, if you knew who you were talking to, if you knew what I had, you you would look to me for satisfaction. All right, thirdly, you guys still with me? I didn't lose you on that thirsty joke. I almost did. You did, yeah, that was pretty rough. I'm sorry about that. All right, point number three. Love can, okay, we've talked about love can't. Love can refine and reflect in your life. Okay, let me, let me pastor you for a moment, okay? Let me talk, let me talk about like, like the whole goal for this whole thing, why I'm here, why you're here. The goal for our life is for Christ to be formed in us. It's, it's this big idea. The Bible would call it sanctification, okay? So there's salvation. It's what happens when you place faith in Jesus. 
There's glorification. That's what happens when you breathe your last here on earth and you enter into eternity and you enter into your glorified body and you have perfect relationship with God and he wipes away all your tears and life is, it's heaven, it's paradise. That's glorification. In the middle, from salvation to glorification, it's what the Bible would call sanctification. And what this is, is it's, it's Christ being formed in you. It's you becoming holy like God is holy. It's this, it's this redemptive work throughout your whole life of God pruning and cutting away and changing and, and reorchestrating and making you the person that he wants you to become. Like, that's the Christian experience. So I've, I've just given you your whole life in, in a couple of sentences. It's salvation, it's sanctification, it's glorification. That's your life, Christ being formed in you. One of the ways that God does this is through relationships. Our relationships form and shape us. The right ones shape us into the people God wants us to become. That's the reality. So God is making you into something. He's forming your life. And part of him forming your life is putting people and experiences and jobs and colleges and opportunities and, and, and acts of service and all of these things into your life to make you the person he wants you to become. He's shaping you. And one of the ways, one of the primary ways I would say that God does that is through relationships. Now, not just romantic relationships, through all relationships, right? You, like your friendships matter. Who you hang out with because who you hang out with is ultimately what you become like. You know what I'm saying? Like you hang out with a certain group for, for a long enough period of time, you start dressing, acting, t- talking, like sharing the same types of memes. Like we just like, you start like to vibe, like you get it. That's what happens. And, and so relationships do that in your life. And so love can, relationships can refine you, make you the person that God wants you to become. But secondly, it also can reflect in your life. Worship team, you guys can come up here. Not only does the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon give us a beautiful love story and principle about relationships, it also illustrates for us God's love. Now, I hesitate to say this because a lot of people have debates on the Song of Solomon, the book as a whole. We're not going to get into that. I've got three minutes, so we can't talk about it. But we can say that the Song of Songs is a great illustration for God's love for us. This is a story about pursuit. It's a story about permanence. It's it's a story about unconditional love. It's about all of those things. And listen, God's love pursues us. It sees you and it pursues you. God's love is permanent. Meaning it's not going to go away. God's love is not going to one day run out. God's love for you is not going to go like, you've used it all. You're no longer lovable. Like you've been bad. God's love's run out. God's love is permanent. And God's love is unconditional. Meaning it doesn't need a pretext in order for you to receive it. God's love is not you do this, then God will do that for you. That's not, that is not the, the narrative of the Bible. The Bible is always God does it and we receive it. God loves you, we receive it. God's love is not, okay, we've been talking about relationships and now you gotta go out and do it perfectly and then God will love you and bless you. 
We, I, I was reading a book. Um, I just finished it this week. It's called After Doubt. And I think we're going to do a series. I'm still praying through it about doubt coming up, but we'll see. Um, but one of the things it talks about is there's a, there's this misunderstanding about God that we use an if-then formula with God. If I do this, then you'll do that. And, and, and one of the worst places that we see it is in relationships. And the church is guilty of this. And what, what we do is we say, if you honor God in your dating life, then God will bless your married life. Like, if you do everything right, right? So if you, like, wait till marriage, if you only send each other Bible verses, like, if you only do things right, then God will bless your marriage. And the problem is, is that that just doesn't happen sometimes. Like, I have, I have one friend who I grew up with who did everything right, went to Bible college, met a person there, like, waited till marriage, got married, everything was great, and then things just went horrible. They got divorced, their life was broken, and since that time, have had doubts about God completely. Because there's this, there's this misconception that if I do things right, then God will give me exactly what I want. Like it's this formula. You do it right, then God's gonna bless you. And the reality is, is there's these things that happen, whether it's, whether it's just human decisions or if it's part of God's like forming you, whatever it is, I don't know. Like if I could be a pastor and just say like there's things about God and the way he works and the difficulties that we experience that I just don't know why. Um, but this, this misconception that if you do it, then God will bless you. And the reality is, is what we experience in God is that God has, has chosen us, God loves us, God favors us, God has a plan for us. Like that is a guarantee. What that plan looks like, how the favor looks like here and now on planet Earth sometimes is confusing. And I'll admit that. It's sometimes confusing. Like I thought I was chosen, I thought I was favored. Why is my life so, so hard? Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I wish I knew I don't know. Okay, it's just, I don't know. God knows. I know that's not a very good answer. I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry, I'm processing out loud. I want to articulate this well. I love you all. Um, so what happens is we, we sort of view God's love as an if-then love. If I do things right, then God will love me. If I make every right decision and I don't sin and I never mess up and I only do relationships right, then God's gonna bless the rest of my life. And God's love is a love that pursues you no matter how far you run. God's love is permanent. You can't use it up. And God's love is unconditional, meaning he's not waiting for you to get your life right so that you earn or deserve his love. He freely gives it. He freely gives us his love. What we do is receive it. And then from that, so that's, this is the big idea. From that, we live as God wants us to live. We don't, we don't live as God wants us to live so that he'll like us. From the favor we've received, from the love we've received, we then, as an act of surrender and obedience and just like, God, you're so good, we then walk the way that God wants us to live. 
So you coming to church or you reading your Bible or you honoring God in your relationships is not to earn favor from God. God loves you and he will never love you less. We do things right because we've received favor from God. And we believe that what God says in his word and how he directs our life is actually the best way to live. We believe that the the way to experience the fullness of life here and now is to live in the way that honors God. That's what I'm trying to say. Does that make sense? Because God has a plan for your life, for your whole life, including your love life, but your life is more than your love life. That was a good wrap up. God loves you. God loves your, God lo- I can't even repeat it, but it was good. God loves you. God cares about your whole life. He's got a plan for your love life, but your life is more than your love life. It's about walking with him, being changed by him, being in relationship with him, and satisfaction and contentment is found in him and him alone.